0: Chow 2 and welcome to the second Slate Plus episode for Slowburn Season 7, which is covering the lead up to Roe v. Wade. In these member exclusive episodes, we'll hear from the Slowburn team about the making of the show, and then we'll hear some interviews that will expand upon the themes and stories covered in the series. In today's episode, we're gonna hear more about what happened to the anti-abortion movement after Roe was decided. But first, we're gonna hear more about episode two of this season. So I have here with me Slowburn host Susan Matthews and associate producer Sophie Summergrad. Hey there, Susan. Hey there, Sophie. Hi, Chow. Hey. Okay, so this second episode was about the pro-life movement that was happening in the United States in the 1970s. And Susan, I know that using the term pro-life was actually an important decision for you to make for the show. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, of course. So what I would say about pro-life and right to life and like all of these phrases that we associate with uh, anti-abortionists is I think that there are a few things to unpack. And the first is that the debate about what to call each side and who is calling the shots kind of happens after Roe is decided. Mm. Roe is decided Mm. in January of 1973. There's like a little bit of conversation about how each side should identify themselves before, but there really isn't even that much of a nationalized pro-life movement that much before Roe. Like it's kind of in a very state by state place. So the whole debate, like, like now, it's definitely true that the Associated Press says that you should call people who are against abortion anti-abortion. And that is something that I take seriously. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I really thought about and the thing that I really found that I thought was really interesting when I was reporting this series is that before Roe, the term pro-life was just like a little bit different. The original origins of pro-life were to kind of sum up the political identity of people who were both against the Vietnam War and were also against abortion. Right. And the right. Wilkies in particular, they become political later on, although I think that they did try to kind of stay away from politics considering their place in the movement. But particularly before Roe, they just weren't that political about it and their opposition was largely religious rather than anything else. And I read a couple of books by historians who are writing about this time, and they basically made the argument that they called these groups by the names that they identified by. And I just kind of felt like it felt too oppositional and in the present moment to change that um, Mm -hmm. when talking about it in the early 1970s. So We use that language and I'm very curious if Slate (laughs) listeners in particular pick up on that and, and wonder about that. But I would say that my short answer, that was just the long answer, but my short answer is that this is really what they called themselves at the time and it wasn't really that controversial that this is what they were calling
0: themselves then. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. So this episode focused specifically on the Wilkies, so Jack and Barbara, and then their daughter Marie was a really important source in this episode. Susan, what was it like to get in touch with her? I guess I was kind of surprised by how open and reflective she was about everything.
1: I know. So was I. I emailed her and I was like... Is she going to respond? Like, what's going to happen? And like a week went by and I hadn't heard back from her and I followed up and I was like kind of making a plan to call her. And she just replied to my second email and kind of said like, oh, I'm so glad you emailed again because I totally missed this the first time. Like, I'm happy to hop on the phone. And yeah, she was totally open with us in the interview. I've thought about this a little bit, but something that really struck me was when we were interviewing Cynthia Gorney who is a journalist who has covered abortion for decades, she kind of said to us, yeah, like the pro-life side is happy to talk to you if you kind of take them seriously. Like they really care about getting their side of the story out there. And that was kind of how I felt with Marie. But Sophie, I'm curious what you thought of Marie,
2: like coming into that interview, not having talked to her on the phone before as I had. Yeah, I wasn't really totally sure what to expect, though I was excited that she seemed really game to talk to us. And right at the beginning of the interview, I sort of felt taken by her. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we all were sitting in this interview and feeling like, oh, my God, this is such an interesting person who, you know, definitely is coming from a very specific perspective about abortion, but she's incredibly charismatic and a great storyteller and also has this sort of quality that I think resembles her parents in a lot of ways. You know, we had been going through tape from her her mother and her father, mm-hmm. and she also has this sort of way of like slowly explaining her viewpoints and talking through positions and arguments mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like really taking the person she's talking to through her train of thought and I was like oh she is really interesting and really reminds me of her parents she was a very charismatic person to talk to and also really open with us in a way that I think we were all extremely grateful for because you know you never know how someone's going to react to talking about such a sort of hot button topic and she was just down to answer all of our questions my
1: number one favorite part of that interview, I didn't know going into it that she was the woman, I guess she was in college, uh-huh. so she was like 20, that she was the, the person on the cover of the handbook on abortion. Right. So there was just a moment where she told us that and we were just, I was just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I've been looking at this book for so long and
2: it's you. <laughs> yeah, we have a little chat going on the side in our interviews and we were all like, oh my God, oh my God, like just floating in <laughs> I can't
0: believe it. Yeah, I'm curious, Sophie, like how familiar you were with The Handbook on Abortion before this. Um, And I know also that you guys have gotten a copy yourself, right? So you've seen what it looks like and what it used to be like.
2: Yeah, totally. I really wasn't familiar with The Handbook on Abortion before working on this podcast and before Susan kind of, we were laying out what the episodes were going to look like. And Susan was like, I really want to focus on this book. I really want to focus on this couple. And, you know, the book has been reprinted many times. Mm -hmm. It was first published in 1971 and Susan got a version from 1979 and we were, you know, looking through it. It's so fascinating, but there's been material added to it in the years since it was first published and things have changed. You know, obviously that's a post row book. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we were looking for something beforehand and, uh, I was scouring the internet uh, and found a version from right before Roe, I think, in the fall of 1972, on eBay. Wow. Ordered that. <laughs> yep, ordered that. Arrived to my apartment. It was very interesting. Uh, my little handbook on abortion coming in the mail. <laughs> and actually, like right after I got it, there was a premiere party for Gaslit. The new show based on the first season of *Slow Burn*, right, right, starring Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. A little plug for, for that <laughs> show. And yep. we were all meeting up at the premiere that night, and I said to Susan, "I was like, oh, I have something for you that I'm going to bring," <laughs> and just brought the 1972 version of *Handbook on Abortion* in my purse to the premiere party, <laughs> and it was like very bizarre and strange, but also felt like, oh, you know, this is all we think about; it's all we're focusing on. Yeah. Like, of course, we're going to go out and have a fun night, and i I'm gonna bring you the, a handbook on abortion. So it's perfect size to put it in your
1: purse. I think that they designed it intentionally for that reason. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I'm curious about what that eBay listing was like. Was it someone that had had it, or someone that was just into history? Do you know anything? You know, about I'd, ha- the seller? I'd have to.
2: I'd have to look back at it. I feel like it might have been someone who was like a bookseller and maybe collected older books or something like that. Mm-hmm. But there was nothing sort of obviously political or aligned in either way on no. it um so you know it wasn't like clear who who might be selling it but yeah it was a cool find and and when you crack it open and look at it the intro is different in both of them because the one that was released before Roe is sort of talking about this as you know this fight to come and this thing that hasn't quite changed yet mm-hmm. and then after Roe, it's obviously very different and they have a different different messaging
0: Hmm. yeah, Susan, what was your impression when you first started looking through these different versions?
1: So I think that the way that I got back to it was from the Todd Aiken thing. And then I started looking at the Wilkies and then I kind of realized who they were. And I kind of realized, oh, this is the story. And mm-hmm. I ordered the nineteen seventy nine copy of the handbook like pretty early on, and I had all these books about Roe, and I was reading them, and I had like that one off to the side, and I was kind of like, this is not just a history book. Like, this is going to be a different kind of book. I have to kind of wait until I'm in the right headspace to just kind of, like, engage with this. This was, like, definitely the toughest episode for me in some ways, I think, just because I think I'm, like, pretty on the record about supporting abortion rights. I knew it was going to be hard for me to approach it as a journalist, and I wanted to make sure that I was treating it fairly and all these things and so like I first got the book and when you open it there are a few pages in every copy that are like color photographs like special pages that are for photographs so it's like when you read a biography and there are like the sections of Mm, the photos in the middle Mm -hmm. it's like that so it like opens up to those except for these photographs are really intense photos of abortions um And so I just – it was, like, on my coffee table, like, tucked underneath (laughs) for a long time before I approached it. And I, like, finally waited. And then I got into it. And it's so fascinating. It was so interesting to see – like, I think Sophie was describing before the parallels between how the – handbook is written and kind of how marie explains things like there's kind of an approach of like very simple like taking a step back just like not being antagonistic that in a very specific way there's like a very detached but like calm manner to both of the things that is just it's totally distinct i've never interacted with anything that feels like it before honestly
0: Hmm. yeah uh, so another story that I thought was really interesting from episode two was about George Michaels. So he was in the New York State Assembly and then changed his vote kind of at the last minute, and that helped expand abortion rights in the state. I hear that his family has been in touch with with you all.
1: Yes. So I had heard the George Michaels story really early on. Too, it's something that's talked about a lot. New York was one of the really early states to legalize right. abortion, and that story is so good. Obviously, I mean. When you're doing this kind of work, you're constantly like, okay, that person was such and such an age 50 years ago. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm probably not going to get to talk to them. But he had specifically mentioned that it was his children who convinced him to change his mind. And so we thought, like, this is an instance where we should try to talk to his children. So I had emailed both of his remaining living children in, like, February, I want to say. And I never heard back from them. And then, like, two weeks ago... A woman pitched another editor here, Jeff Bloomer, and kind of said, like, I know that you're doing this podcast about the history of abortion. Oh, Our wow. family has a story about the history of abortion. We'd love for it to be included. And myself and all of George Michael's other granddaughters have written this op-ed, and we just, like, really want you to consider it. And Jeff, like, forwarded it to me and was like, maybe not, but, like, maybe. I don't know. Like, he he <laughs> basically knew that we were really far along in the process, so we weren't right. going to be able to add anything else. But... We knew that story. We have been telling mm-hmm. that story. So it was just super exciting. Wow. Uh, I called her like that night or something and got a few more details about what that story was. And I'm working on an op-ed with her and one of her cousins that we're going to publish on, on Slate. So by the time you're listening to this, it will probably be published on Slate.com. Uh, and it's just really cool to think about, in particular, like with these stories, they happened so long ago. So you wonder like who remembers them, who talks about them. And in this mm-hmm. family, they talk talk about it for sure
0: (laughs) yeah it's kind of interesting though like knowing that he talked about the family connection and then now we're still like you still have this family talking about it like that is pretty cool
2: Mm -hmm. yeah and I think it's an incredibly emotional thing for them too Mm
0: -hmm. I remember
2: Susan passed along the email and I mean there are a million things working on this project that have made me cry (laughs) um, at random times but one thing I'll just read like one line from their email if that's okay yeah this is from one of his granddaughters, again, like fifteen granddaughters, just kind of amazing that this person had <laughs> such a huge family. And she said, We benefit from his political sacrifice and we want to inspire politicians to consider what is more important to them than holding on to their political seat. Someday their granddaughters will thank them like we are doing today. Wow. Yeah. And it just it like really hit me of uh, this man truly gave up his career, his Mm -hmm. work, his life to do something that he felt was right for everyone and his family and that he has this like beautiful crew of granddaughters (laughs) that want to thank him today and still talk about it. And, you know, it's this like family story and it just feels like that's very important to keep in mind and to still be thinking about now of just like the legacy that Mm -hmm. you could potentially leave, not necessarily in your successes and in your success in staying in office, but the difference you could make for the people in your life and the people you represent. So I thought that was just really beautiful. And I cried reading it the first time. <laughs> so.
0: Understandably. But going off of something that Susan was also talking about earlier, you know, there was a lot of of research that had to be done for this episode. And Sophie, I'm sure you really had to dig in through a lot of like pro-life material and content. Like, what was that like for you? Was there anything that was surprising about digging into this period, looking back at it, reading that sort of stuff now?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think this was a heavy episode in a lot of ways, in part because, So much of this episode is about how the Wilkies used photographs and Mm -hmm. images. And so, you know, it's not just like reading an article about them or kind of taking in text information. Really a big part of this is looking at images. And, you know, I remember like we'd kind of be sending images back and forth to each other via Slack and being like, hey, I have a photo. Like, are people open to seeing this right now or not? Kind of like checking in because it is really intense. And I think the other thing too is we are so used to seeing fetal images today. We're so used to seeing ultrasounds and people posting their sonograms on Instagram or, you know, whatever it looks like. And for people in these years, like that just wasn't common to be able to see a fetus in utero. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, abortion is incredibly private. And so oftentimes you, you know, you'd never expect to see a photo of what that looks like. So for the Wilkies to collect and publicize images of fetal remains, it's heavy and it's intense. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that really surprised me actually digging into this period and into kind of this conversation, this episode has a lot to do with religion and the sort of backlash. And you expect, I think the way that, you know, conventional wisdom has gone oh, Catholics are against abortion or certain religions are against abortion. But there were a lot of, especially clergy members, we don't really get into it in this episode, but there was something called the Clergy Consultation Service Mm -hmm. that popped up in these years where you had members of clergy from different denominations and different faiths who would help refer women to get safe abortions. Um, So they'd kind of vet these... Providers. They'd, you know, do their best to obviously like make sure everything was safe, both for medically for the people going, and also for maintaining some sort of level of anonymity and and secrecy. But these members of clergy were like our job is we have people in our congregations, parishioners who need help, and we are supposed to be able to provide help and advice and counsel. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of, I don't know, like coming into it, I always just kind of, you know, it, it, we talk about this issue in such a polarized way now, but I yeah. think it was much murkier and much more complicated then. And so you have these people who you would maybe never expect to be at the forefront of demanding safe and legal abortions and actually helping people getting abortions themselves, not just talking about it. And so I thought that was really, really interesting.
0: Susan, was there anything in particular that surprised you when you were researching this period?
2: I
1: think that for my part, what I would just want to say is that, like, my extended family is all very Catholic, but my immediate family is not. And I was just totally raised to think that abortion is is a right and is fine and all these things. And I really wanted to actually understand what the other side thinks and why. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that the way that Sophie is describing how we interacted with the images, how we interacted with each other about the images, to me, it answers that question, I hope. Like, why do people feel so strongly about this? And like, how did it come to be that this is so polarized and this is how it feels to people? Like, I really do think that I came to understand that. And like with Marie Wilkie Myers, who is just such a generous person talking to us, like to really experience that deeply held belief being talked about not from a point of like aggression or argumentation, but just from a point of like, this is what I think and why I found that to be extremely valuable. And so that was kind of something that I was hoping would happen going into it. And I was just like, kind of nervous. It's it's hard to have these conversations. I definitely reached out to people who learned that I worked at Slate and said that they didn't want to talk to me anymore, mm-hmm. um, which was a bummer. <laughs> but yeah. I am so grateful for the people who who did engage. And I think that it really helps tell a really important side
0: of the story. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it was really fascinating. And so Actually, for the rest of this episode, we're going to hear more about the anti-abortion movement and kind of basically what happened after Roe was decided. So, Susan, you spoke with Jennifer L. Holland, who is an assistant professor of U.S. history at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, She wrote a book in 2020 called Tiny You, A Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement. And so you two spoke about, you know, what happened to the anti-abortion movement and how it became so intense and at times violent. So let's listen to that discussion now.
1: I was wondering if we could just start by you laying out a little bit how you see opposition to abortion before Roe and kind of how other religious groups saw abortion before 1973.
3: Yeah. The early anti-abortion movement grows up in the context of individual states in the mid to late 60s, beginning to consider reforming their abortion law. And at first, it really is just adding more loopholes, more exceptions, right? Rape, incest, and if the mental health of the woman was at stake. These are the very early sort of reforms that are being considered and are passed beginning in 1967. And so the early anti-abortion movement begins really in the context of those state-by-state-oriented reform movements that they realize their state legislature might actually consider this, and so they get a group together. Mm -hmm. One of the things they also see as a part of that reform movement is the role of religious people being very vocal supporters of abortion reform. So the most famous group is the Clergy Consultation Service, which was begun in 1967 in New York, but spreads across the country. And these are Groups of clergy, almost all men, right? Because clergy at the time were almost all men, but Protestants, rabbis, and they said they had some Catholic priests, but they, you know, those priests would never, could never be outspoken the same way. It'd have to be secret. But these clergy counsel on abortion, and basically the counseling was sort of talking them through it, but they would follow the lead of the person seeking the abortion, and then they'd help connect them to an abortion provider, you know, funneling them towards safe and relatively affordable abortion providers, either in their state or in other states or really even across national boundaries. And then those same clergy would testify about what they were doing in state legislatures, say this is a moral problem. You know, we put the moral weight with the woman and that this is something that the legislature should continue making at least more abortions legal. So the most Outspoken religious people in the late 60s around abortion were supporting legal abortion. Right, b- because they saw the cost of illegal abortion. Right, yeah. I mean, really, a whole host of religious people, anyone who was in the everyday work of helping parishioners deal with their lives, faced the problem of women not being able to control their reproduction. And Catholic priests had seen this for a long time, too. I mean, since the early 20th century, Catholic priests sort of been desperate to try to get some solution, especially to the issue of birth control, because Catholics, of course, don't allow artificial birth control either. But, you know, they have been faced with these people coming to them and saying, you know, we cannot afford another mouth to feed. Maybe I have an abusive husband, any number of problems, right? Like married people often, who like desperately cannot have another child, but all the priests could really offer was like, well, you know, you, you might try the rhythm method or abstinence, but if you do use birth control or certainly abortion, you cannot take communion, right? These essential things about what it meant to be Catholic. And every religious person had felt that to a certain extent that this deep, profound need that they they really couldn't answer to and that sometimes it led into real physical disasters for people who, who sought illegal abortion. And so since the 1920s on, there had been clergy and religious denominations who had been rethinking sex and rethinking about like whether it was moral to stop sex from leading towards pregnancy. And since the 1920s, there had been religious people saying that birth control was moral um, because sex was a really valuable part of marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And not because it needed to produce babies, but be- because it was really productive for bonding married people together, um, and so you needed married people to be able to have sex without the threat of pregnancy every step of the way. And that moves towards, you know, by the 60s, a number of denominations advocating for abortion reform. So Catholics sort of felt more and more separate, I think, from a lot of, especially the most outspoken religious people in the United States by the, right. by the late 60s.
1: Yeah, because Catholics are the ones who really think in this period that life begins at conception. So that sets them up for yeah. for a different set of things. So can you tell me a little bit about what the reaction to Roe v. Wade coming down is? And and when do things really start to change and evolve in mm-hmm. terms of how much other religions start to care about abortion?
3: 1973, of course, did with Roe v. Wade, that did change a lot. It becomes a national movement, but it remained a relatively small movement. The contours of it remained the same. And in states where there weren't a lot of Catholics, like in much of the South and in places like where I live, Oklahoma, it was a pretty small movement. So there were evangelical anti-abortion activists in the 70s, and they were pressing their denominations to sort of oppose abortion. But evangelical leadership um, in the late 60s up through the mid-70s was not opposed to legal abortion. The, in the late 60s, there was this big conference um, of evangelical you know, pastors and intellectuals, and then they get together and, and talk about issues of, of sexuality and reproduction. And what comes out of that is that they say, well, you know, we believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, and the Bible's not clear about when life begins and about abortion. And so we support um, opening up Legal abortion in in more and more cases. So you have evangelical leadership um, and many evangelical people sort of maintain that even after Roe. So in 1974 and 1976, the Southern Baptist Convention basically reaffirms that same that same claim.
1: Then what happens
3: in the late yeah. 70s
1: <laughs> that changes this so much?
3: So you do have activists who who are pushing throughout that era, right? Individuals uh-huh. who are pushing their denominations. And then there's this other thing happening in the 70s with a lot of evangelical denominations. They are in the midst, as were Catholics um, in the decade before, in the midst of massive change um, within their denominations. So a lot of uh, fundamentalists are sort of remaking a lot of evangelical denominations in the 70s, pushing them into more rigid sort of theological territory and more conservative political territory. So this is this broader change that's happening in a lot of evangelical spaces. And then by the late 70s, this on-the-ground work of uh, evangelical anti-abortion activists really starts to come to fruition, right? That it actually starts to produce results. But it can produce results because these communities are changing in a whole host of ways. And now it sort of fits in sort of a broader evangelical space in a way that it hadn't. In the 80s and 90s, opposing abortion almost comes to be... A defining part of what it meant to be evangelical um, for white mm-hmm. evangelicals, but that was a, a product of some grassroots political work but also the fact that these denominations are changing in in broader ways. What are some of those ways? Like is there a specific
1: story that you know of that kind of illustrates how this transformation happens and how it how it kind of tees up and sets up this situation I think in the 80s and 90s that is more familiar to people where, you know, opposing abortion does become one of these like really defining characteristics of what it means to be evangelical.
3: So this movement is incredibly strong at not just making verbal arguments, but really conveying them and really putting them into the intimate spaces of everyday life. So there is a film in the late seventies that goes around and it's whatever happened to the human race. It's very much an anti-abortion film and it sort of circulates among Francis Schaefer, which is this Famous uh, evangelical theologian, and they take it around all these communities, and it you know it has these images of um, I think one of the famous ones was sort of dolls in the Dead Sea, sort of evoking all of the fetuses who died from abortion. But after this, evangelicals really move these kinds of arguments into the lives of evangelicals and so much so that they become a part of so many pieces of evangelical life. So for example, a man, I forget his name, but he he was from Colorado, but he came up with this idea of these kind of evangelical um, haunted houses that you could put up around Halloween Ideally, they'd bring in people outside of evangelical communities, but what they found were evangelical and fundamentalists were the already people were, you know, were the ones who actually came. But rather than just a regular haunted house, it was sort of a a haunted house that would lead you through some things that were, you know, sort of more haunted house variety things, but they would get you towards sort of the terrors of sort of modern society. And it would culminate in this scene of an abortion, this like deadly, you know, this very bloody, yeah. Um, Sometimes they would like throw body parts at the audience. Um, I mean, and, and so this initially began just as this one guy's idea, but it spread. And so like people across the country, you know, evangelical churches across the country would host these similar type of haunted houses that would culminate in this like gruesome terrifying abortion scene.
1: That's so fascinating because one of the things that we're talking about in this episode is about just how the Wilkies used fetal imagery. But this Mm -hmm. is like so the next level of that, like in terms of visceralness.
3: Well, what the story is about this movement is that it does begin with the Wilkie photos and other types of early ephemera, but it spreads. The pictures are perhaps the cornerstone But the movement is so innovative about creating new kinds of fetal imagery and taking it into all these spaces. So the haunted house might bring people in for Halloween, but they also come up with these like little tiny plastic fetus dolls that weren't bloody the way that a lot of the pictures were. And you could give them to kids, right? You could pass them Mm -hmm. out at fairs. You could take them into Sunday schools. You could take them into public schools. And you have buttons and t-shirts and balloons. And I mean, the movement just the kinds of tools really centered on visualizing the fetus and also making arguments about abortion, they just expand and proliferate in the 80s and 90s and 1000s.
1: And it really sounds like it becomes like kind of part of an identity, yeah. like if you're wearing the pins or doing yeah. doing that. So one question that I had, my understanding is that it's really in the 80s and maybe particularly the 90s, where the idea of protesting outside of clinics takes mm. off. In addition to that, there are these moments of like relatively ex- extreme violence, like several mm-hmm. cases of, you know, anti-abortion protesters killing providers. Yeah, How does it get from these like creepy haunted houses to this really extreme confrontational mm-hmm. movement?
3: Well, they always protested, but you're right. The tenor of the protests changes sub- significantly in the 80s and 90s. And that's a product of the fact that these movements have been working for over a decade. They've been doing all this really important work, but they haven't been successful. So the 70s, I mean, if we looked at really like the news in the 70s, you'd see around abortion, you might see that the movement's constantly trying to get a constitutional amendment passed, banning abortion, and it never happened. They can't get it to pass. And so if you look at only that, you see them not being terribly successful. That Roe, in some ways, is its strongest in the 70s and early 80s. So they haven't been terribly successful at limiting access. But by the mid-80s, there's this terrible frustration, right, with what they have actually been able to accomplish. You know, they might have been Mm -hmm. changing hearts and minds, but they really weren't changing access to abortion. They weren't ending it. And so what you have is this radicalization occur coming out of that. They use the rhetoric around... It being a civil rights issue and a human rights issue. They borrow a lot from the language of the Holocaust and say this is a, they call it the abortion Holocaust. And they say, well, if we are using this language, we need to treat it like this, right? We need to stop mm-hmm. treating it like it's something separate. And so you have, especially evangelicals lead a lot of the more radical movements, but Catholics join these movements. They're very much a part of this. Even though someone like Randall Terry leads Operation Rescue, it doesn't mean that that it's an only evangelical movement. Catholics Mm -hmm. are as disillusioned with what they've been able to accomplish. And so you have not just protests, right, but this really broad harassment um, that occurs in the 80s and 90s, where constant harassing phone calls glue in the locks that you might burst in and chain yourself to something inside the clinic. There might be arson, there might be you know, following a uh, abortion provider and protesting outside of their home, or sometimes even going to the abortion provider's kids' schools, right, there's mm-hmm. just this incredible wide range of attack I mean really a, a campaign of terror in some ways I mean because even though people are murdered in this period every single abortion provider especially in freestanding clinics is getting threats of murder so this is this is a born out of frustration about really what they had been able to achieve and especially when the rescue movement collapses they were using civil disobedience they were blocking clinic doors, they go to one city and besiege it for a, a tie up the courts and stop abortion that day. But eventually, by the mid 90s, by 1994, Congress has, you know, passed the face law, the freedom of access to clinics entrances, and that put new penalties on that kind of activism. And so especially in that era where the rescue movement, too, is sort of winding down, that's when you see a, a real spark in the actual murders of abortion providers and people around them. Because even though the movement, for the mainstream movement, they're like, that's a PR problem, right? To say you're, you support human life, but then murder abortion providers. But it also, for them, it, it was a reasonable extension of the logic that, you know, if you say this is a Holocaust. Right. And you say that the millions are, are being murdered. And it, it doesn't take a huge leap to say, well, would you take out Hitler, right? And especially as abortion providers are being figured as mass murderers. I mean, I think that that's not a huge leap for some people. Um, mm-hmm. to move in that direction. So how does the violence kind of taper off? Because that, that's
1: my understanding that that's what happens next. And how is that connected to what the movement tries to do politically next?
3: I, I mean, some of these people are, you know, imprisoned. Mm-hmm. And it's a rash of violence, but it, it does slow. Because ultimately, like, it, it doesn't stop legal abortion either. The movement always wanted the same thing right they always wanted to ban abortion everywhere and the only exception is potentially if the life of the mother is at at stake mm-hmm. but there really was differences between activists about strategy about whether you tried to ban it altogether and you only your only action was things that could end legal abortion or Whether the other people said, well, we should at least try to limit access to reproduction, a more incrementalist approach. After the end of the rescue movement, the center of the movement remains focused on incrementalism and they have more latitude because after the 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, that decision says basically a restriction on abortion is constitutional as long as it doesn't impose an undue burden on the abortion seeker. Um, So they're having more success passing those restrictions. But by the late 90s, you know, you have a whole host of socially conservative leaders and activists who've been voting for Republicans and have perhaps gotten more restrictions passed, but not, not really ended abortion. You have a lot of people sort of saying the right things. And not following through in real ways after they were elected. And so in the late 90s, you have leaders really putting their foot down, especially with the Republican Party and saying, listen, we're not going to be good foot soldiers anymore. We're not going to be a part of a big tent party that allows like pro-choice Republicans to be a vital part of this group. That we need people who are actually going to follow through and pass more laws and if possible, nominate Supreme Court justices.
1: I had a question about that because you mentioned the politicians who are maybe not as strong as they think, but there's this real feeling of disappointment in the justices that have been nominated at this point.
3: Right. So, I mean, Ronald Reagan is sort of a classic example of somebody who was elected very much from you know, a socially conservative base. So they get him in office. He says the right things, even though he definitely had a foot in the older Republican Party because he Mm -hmm. had been the governor in California, right? And he had signed the abortion law, liberalizing California's abortion law. Before Roe. Yeah, Yeah, before Roe, right. So he had his foot in this older Republican Party, but by the time he's running in the late 70s, he's very, says the right things and really wins as a conservative politician who's going to support, you know, socially conservative views. But when it comes to nominating a Supreme Court justice, he says he wants Sandra Day O'Connor. And the anti abortion movement tells him, especially the one in Arizona, right, which is where she was from, they knew her and they said, she is not our justice, right? She's Mm -hmm. not the guy we want. And Reagan ignores them and nominates her anyway. And so you can see how even Reagan, who very much was you know, elected with them, he, he says the right things, but he didn't follow through mm-hmm. in the way that they hoped he would.
1: Yeah. So getting into the 2010s, it seems to me that they become more focused on the justices and the Supreme Court and in supporting politicians who are more on their side about what needs to happen there. Is that right?
3: They always were geared towards electing people who agreed with them. Mm -hmm. At first, it's not clear what party is going to be their partisan vehicle, but they realized pretty early on they need a party to be their party. And in the late '60s and early '70s, right, Catholics were white Catholics were by and large Democrats. Mm-hmm. But by the mid '70s, it's clear that the, the Democratic Party isn't going to be their party; um, that it's more sympathetic to feminists. And in 1976 is when the Republican Party first puts an anti-abortion plank on its platform. They didn't have as much political power at that point. They were good voters, but they weren't able to push their elected officials to do more. Like Roe was stronger then, so there was less possibility to do much more. But in the 21st century, you just see the the power of this group grow, and also that you have them sort of putting more lines in the sand, that they weren't going to be Supporting Republicans who didn't do this. And even though they were a minority, they were an incredibly powerful minority because they would come out to vote. Many people would vote on this issue alone. You didn't have to give them much in terms of policy, right? And right. so they were a really useful voting base. So even George W. Bush, you know, you can see the effects of that. That was the era when Congress was pushing through this, like, quote unquote, partial birth abortion ban. And then the 2010s, you have. Um, these wave elections that elect a large number of Republicans, but they're also a different kind of Republican mm-hmm. than had been elected in the past in many cases. um, or more of them were. Now you have people who were either sincerely committed themselves to opposing abortion or like president trump. they they knew, who their base was, and they knew what they needed to do.
1: Okay, so we're expecting this decision in Dobbs, and thanks to the leak, and also just thanks to the arguments, etc. Like, it seems pretty likely that Roe will be overturned. Mm -hmm. What do you think that will mean to the religious right? And like, what do you think they will want to do next?
3: This is a huge victory. I mean, I think we can... State that strongly enough, right, Roe has been the thing they've been trying to overturn and really the big, the biggest hurdle, the thing that protected abortion in every state, at least mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And without that, half of U.S. states will pretty quickly or immediately ban abortion. Now, you know, this is going to be, a, I think, a catastrophe for people seeking abortion care, but it also is going to be messier for legislators because in States like mine, I live in Oklahoma, they can't just ban abortion. They have to try to stop people from leaving the state. Every state that bans abortion will have to try to stop people from crossing state borders. They also have to try to stop the mail Mm -hmm. from people from buying abortion pills to be delivered in their state. So, So they're going to have to use the police power in new ways. That's a really practical governing thing that anti-abortion legislators are going to have to do. The other thing that the movement is going to try to do, of course, is ban abortion everywhere. Turning mm-hmm. it back to the states is not is not the goal, right? The goal is right. ending mm-hmm. abortion everywhere. And so they will have to either try to get some sort of federal law passed uh, that that will be one possibility. Or they'll take another case up to the court and ask the Mm -hmm. court to protect fetuses as citizens under the 14th Amendment.
1: Well, Jen, thank you so much for your time. I really
0: appreciate it. Sure thing. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening and for being a Slate Plus member. Please tell your friends about Slow Burn, and we'll be back next week.